You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 3. Hello, and welcome to the World of Higher Education podcast. I'm Alex Usher. This week, my guest is Chris Marsicano, a professor of educational studies at Davidson College in North Carolina. And today we'll be discussing what's ahead for higher education in the United States in 2023. It's easy enough to shrug in despair at the U.S. and higher education these days. The country barely got out of the Trump years with democracy intact. And since then, higher education, which for decades mostly maintained strong bipartisan support, has become a target for the right. And nowhere more so than in Florida, where one Republican presidential hopeful, Ron DeSantis, is using secondary and post-secondary education as a punching bag in order to raise his profile in the run-up to next year's leadership contests. And it's hardly better in Washington, where a Congress split between a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate and a narrow but extremely fractious Republican majority in the House means it's unlikely much will get done. But Chris is an optimist. As he points out in the interview, the return of the practice of earmarking spending for specific projects within bills, absent the last couple of decades, means that there's more room for deal-making in Congress, and that may reduce partisan logjams somewhat. And while there's going to be a lot of nasty stuff at the state level around race, Chris points to places like California as uh, somewhere to watch on issues like affordability. He also suggests that Tennessee and North Carolina, both of which have Republican legislatures, which have nevertheless historically been quite pro-higher education as the bellwether states to watch. Maybe the most interesting part of this discussion was when I asked Chris about the reaction within the U.S. to the downward spiral of a number of its universities in global league tables. While the position of places like Harvard, MIT, and Stanford at the top tables is a given, a lot of the not-quite-top-tier institutions, such as Vanderbilt and the University of Virginia, have been heading south pretty quickly. Chris's view, and I think it's pretty common in the U.S., is that as long as the top universities stay at the top of global league tables, no one in America is likely to see the development with much alarm. But to me, this kind of misses the point, which is that world-beating excellence in the U.S. is actually becoming less widely dispersed, geographically speaking. Fewer American communities can now count themselves as having universities among the top steeples of global excellence. And I suspect over time, it's this sort of thing that contributes to greater geographic concentration of income, which is one of those things that's been tearing America apart for the last few years. Anyways, many thanks to Chris for an engaging discussion. Have a listen. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here. Okay. Well, listen, uh, we're talking today about um, what 2023 might look like in higher education in the United States. And 2022 ended with the election of a new Congress, which brought us a more clearly Democratic Senate and a House with a very thin and very fractious Republican majority. How's the new Congress going to shake up the politics of higher education? <laughs> uh, well, I think uh, in general, the conventional wisdom is that the new Congress is not going to be able to get much done. There's a view, certainly in Washington, that Speaker McCarthy is not the strongest of speakers in terms of the fact that he's got a small minority of his caucus that is sort of hardline on a variety of issues and believes that they can extract major concessions, not just from the Republican majority, but Congress as a whole. And so they are certainly incentivized to push the envelope. For that small minority, that often means not spending money. 
reducing federal expenditures, reducing taxes. In the same time, you've got a Democratic Senate, as you mentioned, that is very interested in following through on the Biden agenda in terms of more investment in infrastructure, more investment in education. And so you have these sort of unmovable mountains coming up against each other. Now, I'm a little less concerned than I think a lot of those who watch Congress because earmarks are back. So earmarks, the grease that makes the the machine of the the wheels of the machine of Congress work are finally back after a a long hiatus. And uh, we're beginning to see earmarks as a way to sort of get some horse trading done and ensure that Congress does actually operate the way it's intended, which is to pass laws that are signed by the executive branch and then put into action. So I'm a little more optimistic than, than many, but it's going to be a pretty slow going here for a little while. In a sense, it seems to me we're back where we were in the last six years of the Obama administration. You had a president with significant ambitions around public higher education, but who was powerful to do very much because Republican majorities in the House made legislation impossible, right? So now, you know, what, what Obama did then was to start governing by executive order. And so there were very executive orders. I'm thinking around Title IX, and there was, there was his uh, attempt to try and make college free, uh, two-year colleges. Uh, but executive orders just have a more limited scope than legislation. You can't do as much with them. So what does a Biden executive order only agenda look like? So I, I think I think President Biden and his team, you know, know how to use an executive order, clearly. Uh they 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 understand that executive orders are at best temporary. The second a new president comes in, that new president can just undo anything that the Biden administration did. And to the Biden administration's credit, they seem to be focused heavily on finding ways around using executive orders, finding legislation that empowers the administration to make decisions. I think a great example of this is the student loan forgiveness ideas, the student loan forgiveness plans. There is a sort of an obscure passage in a 2003 bill that sort of came out of the post 9-11 Bush world that empowers the Secretary of Education to forgive student loans. So rather than, you know, governed by executive order, the Biden administration says, look, we have the power to do this based on this, this law, this legislation. So we're going to follow through. We're going to use those powers in times of national emergency. And I think that's a key difference between the Biden administration and the Obama administration. The Biden administration has, for better or for worse, had to govern during a time of national emergency, COVID-19. Uh, and as a result of that, has greater executive powers than sort of normal. But the days of governing using those emergency powers are close to over. Yesterday, President Biden announced that on May 11th, the state of national emergency is going to end. And I don't think any one of us knows what's going to happen next. So uh, it sounds to me like in part what you're saying is that Biden's just got better lawyers than Obama does. They've, they've figured out how to guide. <laughs> no, but that's important because, because I mean, because uh, I want to come to that next question about student loan forgiveness, right? Uh, it has been installed in the courts and people are challenging, among other things. Uh, I, I recognize there's a number of challenges uh, from a number of different directions, but one of them is whether or not in 2022, there was still sufficiently a state of emergency in order to use that provision. How is the court process likely to play out over the next year? That's a great question. You know, again, conventional wisdom is that a Supreme Court that is appointed predominantly by Republicans is unlikely to 
allow the Biden administration's plan to go through. That's conventional wisdom. Again, I, I think there's some caveats here that are important to bring up. So where we are currently is about 16 million people of the 26 who applied have been approved for loan forgiveness. However, due to lawsuits from six states, those forgiveness payments have not been allowed to go through. And so the Biden administration has been um, sort of tied, held you know, to the point where they can't give out those student loan payments. The main issues here are those six states argue that they have been injured in some way. So for instance, Missouri says, look, we can't allow this student loan forgiveness to happen because our own state student loan program will be detrimentally affected. And that's sort of the first thing these cases have to show is that there's been some injury to these states in order to stop the, the program. The second is the constitutionality. And you're right. There's there's a, a real question here as to whether there is a, a constitutionality around student loan forgiveness. What constitutes a national emergency is, is a big question here. I do think the Biden administration's lawyers are on fairly solid ground. The question will be, does the Supreme Court consider 2022 pandemic to be a, a student loan forgiveness worthy version of a national emergency. It, it's going to be fascinating to watch. We're still in the early days of this. Written arguments were just supported last week. So we've got a long way to go, but it's going to be a long time before we have a final answer on this issue. Not 2023, I'm hearing. Probably not. So I'm going to turn from student loan forgiveness to student loan repayments, because those have now been suspended for just about three years in the United States now, right? That was yeah. that was uh, fairly early on in the pandemic. They were suspended. They were suspended up here in Canada too, but we got back to repayment within about six months. And at first, you know, it was about COVID and then it was a stopgap measure until forgiveness could be worked out really. And now it's not worked out. So there were, we're back to no, no repayments. If the forgiveness efforts don't work out, if the lawsuits end up destroying that process of loan forgiveness, are loan repayments ever going to be restarted, at least under a democratic government? I don't know. I really, there, there's no real great way to answer that question. I thought they would be reinstated by now. I mean, President Biden has shown himself to very often say something to the effect of, you follow your commitments, you do what you're supposed to do. And there have been multiple times where the rumor has been that the repayment pause is going to stop. I just don't see it happening, certainly while the Supreme Court case is, is going on. And I certainly don't see it happening under this administration. I mean, it is possible even that a Republican administration would start them back. But candidly, it's not entirely clear that that is exactly what would happen. You have a large number of people who now for three years have gotten used to not paying back student loans. It would be sort of a politically fraught decision for any administration to reinstate them. And so I, I think it is pretty clear that the Biden administration has no intention to reinstate the student loan payments. I'm not sure a new Trump administration or a new DeSantis administration would either uh, when it got down to it. It's it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. Right. And of course, if you're not asking students to repay, you might eventually start asking whether or not they should be lending them in the first place, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Listen, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Micro-credentials continue to be the most talked about area of innovation in post-secondary education. This week, Higher Education Strategy Associates, in partnership with the Strategic Council, will be releasing a new report on micro-credentials in the Canadian marketplace, a comprehensive analysis of national and international trends, practices, and policies around micro-credentials, as well as a national survey of employers and employees in Canada. 
If you're a university decision maker tasked with maximizing innovation and value for micro-credentials, this is a report you can't afford to miss. For more information, please contact us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Uh, Chris, another aspect of Democratic Party policy has been the emphasis on making the U.S. more competitive again in areas of high technology through things like the Chips and Science Act. It certainly got the attention of policymakers uh, in Europe and elsewhere around the world simply with the, the tens of billions of dollars due to start flowing towards universities and businesses uh, in high tech areas. Who higher education is really going to benefit from these programs? Yeah, sure. So let's start by sort of talking about what the Chips and Science Act is, what it does, and then I'll answer sort of who benefits. So it does not appropriate, but authorizes around $280 billion for investments in R&D and STEM and chips, creating chips. <laughs> um, uh, about though, $175 billion of the $280 billion is directly towards research, um, R&D programs, about 60, well, about 67 billion of it goes to the Department of Energy, a little over 80 goes to the National Science Foundation. Now, these are massive grant-making agencies to higher education institutions. That's where a lot of the R&D happens, right? And so you would expect that the traditional powerhouses of research, the large public flagship universities in the United States, places like Harvard and Duke and Vanderbilt that tend to do very well in competitive research project processes would also do well in, in these process in the, under the Chips and Science Act. However, there are there is some language in the Chips and Science Act that does direct funding towards minority serving institutions, what the Biden administration calls emerging research institutions, rural serving institutions. So it's not a clear cut. This is definitely going to go to the UCLA's and University of Virginia's of the world. It may also go to to a, a new subset of institutions. Let me take us down to the state level now, because right now, uh, you know, I get people emailing me all the time about what's going on in places like Florida and Texas you know, using these sort of language of demonization, I would argue, about critical race theory, more or less as a cudgel to stop universities from teaching history and sociology properly. How is this CRT stuff going to play out over the, the next year or so? Is this, uh, is it going to be limited to big states like Florida and Texas? Will we see sort of a rolling wave of anti-CRT stuff coming, you know, across all the various Republican states? Uh, how do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, so I think, you know, looking through CRT in 2023, you have to look at the state of Virginia in 2021. So Glenn Youngkin, who ran for governor there, was losing his election. And then the final weeks pivoted as a campaign strategy to focus almost solely on school choice and CRT being taught in high schools. And one in a sort of surprising manner. And so GOP strategists immediately said, okay, this is the way to drive up turnout for our base. This is the way to, to bring sort of more moderate voters onto our side. We've got to tell everybody to do this. Now, the question is, will that do well in a national sort of election? Because the, the viewpoint is that these decisions are in part to place DeSantis and Abbott and others in a situation where they can run for president and challenge President Biden in 2024. So I'm not sure that that message is good for all area codes and all time zones. People in Wisconsin really love the University of Wisconsin, and people in Virginia really love the University of Virginia. And I, I could 
foresee a pretty significant backlash at some point. Now, I think one state that I would really think is worth watching as we move forward here is actually the state where I am right now, North Carolina. So North Carolina has a very strong state legislature and a fairly weak governor in terms of legislative powers or executive powers. And yet the state governor is sort of not going quietly. Uh, Governor Cooper is is a Democrat and has put together a commission that is looking at sort of the governance of public higher ed, watching North Carolina over the next couple of months and years and to see how it plays out uh, in terms of the politics of higher education, that is where I would pay attention. There's sort of soap opera stuff going on down here. And North Carolina being very much a bellwether state these days split between Democrats and Republicans. Very much so. Well, apart from CRT, what else is going on at the state level that we should know about? Are there any any states that you'd pick out as ones to watch, either positively or negatively on the policy front? Uh, Tennessee is another one I would I would watch pretty heavily. Tennessee famously being the first state to have a free community college program, a program that was started by a Republican governor passed in a Republican state legislature, uh, really with the focus on building sort of a competitive employment and labor market for the future. Tennessee would be another one I would watch because if higher ed continues to sort of take it on the chin uh, in, in some ways in Tennessee, then that would suggest a sort of a departure from the previous history of Republican politics in the state. Of course, Florida and Texas are worth watching, not just because their governors have grand designs on the presidency and therefore making decisions to support that decision, but also because that's where a lot of students are right? Uh, Texas, Florida are some of the largest exporters of students, largest 18 to 24 year old traditional age population. What happens in those states is really important for the future of the country. And then I would, of course, uh, you you can't talk about higher ed in the United States without also talking about California. Uh, There's a great push to, to, to force greater affordability in California, certainly legislatively. I don't know what will happen, but the UC system started as nearly free. And there are certainly, there's certainly a component of the California legislature that would like to get back there. So, but if I, again, if I had to pick one to watch, North Carolina would be the one because you have some innovations in low cost, low tuition, higher ed with the North Carolina Promise programs, and you have sort of this political backdrop that will be fascinating to watch in the coming years. Great. Last question. This is more of a longer term phenomenon, if you want to call it that. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote about how American universities have been doing in global rankings. And in particular, a fairly large and geographically diverse group of institutions, both public and private, have really fallen out of the top tier of global rankings. I'm curious if there's a sense in American institutions that the world's catching up and whether or not, you know, is there any urgency about this slipping or or no? That's a great question. I think no, uh, perhaps to our detriment as, as, a, as, a, as a country. Um, you know, I think that there's this belief that in the post-World War II, the United States higher education landscape has had such a first mover advantage uh, that it will be hard for any country to catch up. And even still, as institutions in the United States have fallen out of the top tier of rankings, the majority of institutions still in the top tier of rankings still are American institutions. And so I don't know that there's a massive sense of urgency, but there are a couple of things that I would say, you know, a couple of numbers that I would look at to suggest that there maybe shouldn't be yet, um, that it's too early to have that sense of urgency. The United States is still the number one destination for international students, especially graduate students with over a million graduate students in the United States coming each year that faltered a little bit during COVID and during the Trump administration, but the numbers are going back up. 
Um, and, you know, we have consistently as a nation been fairly open with higher ed. The biggest concern for me around some of these academic freedom issues at some of these public universities at the state level that we just talked about is I worry that that openness will close, that it, that great public universities, especially in the United States, will no longer be considered a destination as they have been for a long time. It's been almost 20 years since the top two producers of bachelor's degrees who go on to graduate degrees in the United States aren't Xinhua and Peking University, right? So we have already imported a great number of international graduate students. We should then therefore not be surprised when those students go back to their countries and make their own universities better, right? And so I don't know that this is so much that the drop in the rankings of places like Vanderbilt, my alma mater, and Virginia is indicative of a loss of power in the United States, although it could certainly be, but really a gain of, of quality and performance across the world. Chris Marcicano, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it was, it was an absolute pleasure. Happy to do it. Uh, happy to come back anytime. We'll call you on that. Thanks a lot. It remains for me to thank the show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course, you, the listener, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please send us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week for episode 1.4, when our guest will be Jamil Salmi, a global higher education expert and former tertiary education coordinator with the World Bank. We'll be discussing his recent work on equity and diversity in university access in low and middle income countries around the world. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 